You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is a former U.S. congressman and senator from Texas, as well as the former chairman of the Senate Banking Committee between 1999 and 2001. Prior to this, he was a professor of economics at Texas A&M University. He is now a senior partner at U.S. Policy Metrics and a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Holding a Ph.D. from the University of Georgia, he's an economist by training, and his latest book is titled The Myth of American Inequality. How Government Biases the Policy Debate. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show, Senator Phil Graham. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Adi, very much. So firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to tell us a bit about your background in Congress. Well, um, I was an economist in my first life, and um, I was a congressman and a senator. Um, I was the author in the House of the Reagan Budget which rebuilt defense, reduced discretionary spending, non-defense discretionary spending, and mandated the tax cuts. Uh, I was the author in the Senate of legislation related to banking uh, and the budget. Um, And uh, I turned 60, and um, the things I came to Washington to do, stop the inflation, win the Cold War, all those things had been done, and I thought there's something to be said for quitting while you're ahead. And so I left the Senate. I didn't seek re-election. And I uh, accepted the job of vice chairman of UBS Investment Bank, and I've subsequently moved into private equity, and I'm affiliated with uh, the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, so that's that makes a long story short. All right. So um, your latest book is titled The Myth of American Inequality, How Government Biases the Policy Debate. So if if anyone listening has watched or read, say, left of center media lately, they'd get the impression that perhaps the starkest economic problem in America today is income inequality. So from slogans like the rich get richer well, while the poor get poorer, tax the rich, this idea that the income divide between the top one well, percent, no, everyone else. Oh, sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll let you continue. No, listen, um, what the book does is it shows that all of our data on poverty and inequality is derived from one measure of income that has been calculated by the Bureau of of the Census since 1947. But since 1947 the Bureau of the Census has counted only about a third of all transfer payments as income to people that receive those transfer payments. For example, it doesn't count food stamps where you get a debit card that allows you to go to the grocery store and buy food. It doesn't count rent subsidies where government pays your rent. Uh, It doesn't count Medicaid, where government pays your health care bills. It doesn't count over 100 
federal, state, and local programs. It also does not take into account taxes. So uh, on the low-income side, it doesn't count refundable tax credits where you get a check from the Treasury as income to the people who get the check, and it doesn't count income lost to people who pay taxes. So the Census Bureau tells us that the ratio of the top 20% of earners to the bottom 20% is 16.7 to 1. We show that if you count all transfer payments as income to people who got the payment, and you count all taxes as income lost to people who pay the taxes, that the ratio is not 16.7 to 1, but 4 to 1. Now, look, you can say 4 to 1 is too much, but obviously it's a very different debate between 4 to 1 and 16.7 to 1. We also show that if you count all transfer payments as income to people that receive the transfer payment, that the poverty rate in America today is not 12.4%, but only about 3%. And we also show that while we all hear every day that, uh, like The Economist magazine says, uh, it is uh, it is indisputed that income inequality in the West is, is high and rising. Uh, Senator Sanders says that income inequality in America is obscene and unsustainable in its growth. And yet we in the book show, using only government data, that if you count all transfer payments as income to people receiving the payment and all taxes paid as lost income to people who paid the taxes, that income inequality is actually lower today than it was in 1947 by a very small amount. So we're having this massive debate about whether or not we should redo the American economy based on growing inequality when, in fact, the data shows uh, that when you count all income received and count taxes as income lost, that in fact, inequality of income is actually slightly lower today than it was 70 years ago. Uh, finally, uh, Adi, we show that transfer payments have grown so rapidly relative to after-tax income of middle-income Americans uh, since 1967 that today, the bottom 60% of all income earners in America basically have very similar um, income, even though the middle 20% have about 90% of their work-age persons actually working, whereas the bottom 20% has only 36% of its work-age persons working. So, that's the first major section of the book.
Yeah. So you'd think that in, in almost 60 years of the war on poverty, someone someone would have realized that, um, right, that, that all these transfer payments are increasing so rapidly, yet we're not counting them in the census data when we're making all these measures. And and that census data really is sort of the the, the one primary source where, where everyone gets their information. And if that if those metrics were completely meaningless without the, the trillions of dollars in transfer payments, you think somebody would have realized that in 60 years? Yeah, it's amazing to me. What happened uh, in 1947 is that the the ability of the census to calculate income was limited. Very few payments were made in kind. Uh, and, uh, and so what the census did was count only cash equivalent income. But over the years, while government collected the data on all these transfer payments and reported it separately, it never went back and changed its basic definition of income. And as a result, those numbers have been used to measure poverty. And uh, the idea that we're reporting a poverty number that does not count food stamps and housing subsidies and Medicaid is almost beyond comprehension and certainly is indefensible. Uh, And as you'll remember, last year, President Biden said, if we double the child tax credit, we'll cut child poverty in half. Well, I pointed out in the Wall Street Journal that that wouldn't happen. And sure enough, when the official number came out on poverty, it didn't happen because the Census Bureau did not count the refundable tax credit as income to the people that received it. And so when their number failed the last test, they were forced to come forward and say, well, if you did count it, it would have had this effect. Well, the point is they don't count it in the official number. So what has happened is since 1967, the amount of transfer payments has grown from $9,700, and this is in real dollars now, adjusted for inflation. It's grown from $9,700 to $45,400 on average, government transfer payments going to the bottom 20% of income earners in America. Uh, And yet, uh, the poverty rate has remained virtually unchanged. And that could have and did happen for only one reason, and that is we didn't count most of the transfer payments as income. And so what has happened is the poverty rate has been used to argue for more transfer payments. We've provided them. Uh, The poverty rate didn't go down because we didn't count them. We've then provided more transfer payments to deal with the poverty rate, but it didn't go down, so we provided more transfer payments. So we now created a situation where the percentage of the bottom 20% of earners working has fallen from 68%. This is prime work age, from 68% to 36%. Um, uh, and the uh, income of the bottom 20% of earners is roughly equivalent to the income of working middle-income Americans. And needless to say, 
Uh, this has destroyed the incentive of many low-skilled people uh, to work. And secondly, it's created resentment among people who work hard for a living and yet find that after taxes, they're not much better off or any better off than people that are not breaking a sweat. So these are major issues that really need to look at, be looked at. But the first thing we need to do is get our facts straight. And that that really is where I think the the beauty of this book lies, because um, oftentimes a, a lot of these a lot of these economic and political books they tend to they they tend to um, digress into say political ideology very quickly, and there's very little of that in this book. So I think. I mean, no matter if you're on the the left, the right, um, you know, wherever you fall politically, this book should be something that you can, you know, you can read. Um, there's there's nothing ideological, really. It's all all numbers and, and statistics, um, and and indisputable ones at that, really. And and so I, I think this is this is something that even if you you're say a Democrat or or you you know a self proclaimed leftist, um, th- this is something that you should celebrate, right? Because it shows that inequality in America is nowhere near as bad um, as you might have come to believe. It shows that all these programs have, in essence, eliminated poverty, except in very limited circumstances where people, because of mental illness or drug addiction, are just simply not taking advantage of the program. And uh, John Early, a a co-author of the book, uh, started out working for George McGovern. So this that we stay away, we don't argue in the book, even though critics claim that this is driven by an opposition to these transfer payments. The point we make in the book is we need to get our facts straight and then have a real debate about what kind of America we want. Uh, The reality is when you count all transfer payments as income and taxes as income lost, It's as if Senator Sanders and Senator Warren have gone to bed, gone to sleep, and dreamed that America became a welfare state, and they wake up and discover that, in fact, it did become a welfare state. And so the question is now, how much more do you want to do? And what are you going to do about the destruction of the incentive of people to work and about the inequality? of people that are working very hard and are no better off than people that aren't working. I mean, those are serious questions that deserve serious discussion. Yeah, and that that sort of brings me to to the argument that I've been making on this show for so long. Um, my my big issue with inequality um, is that I, I can't understand why, why, you know, regardless of how extreme it is, you know, we, we should even care. We should even check inequality as a statistic because almost all wealthy people in the United States today, by and large, acquired their wealth by providing a good or service that added value to society. For example, Bill Gates, by inventing Microsoft, provided a good that improved the lives of billions of people, and then they willingly paid him for his products. I mean, you and I have huge uh, inequality with Bill Gates. But I mean, we're uh, we're we're both doing pretty well, and so he's so is he. And the fact that he has a lot more than us doesn't matter, right? Countries like Belarus and Afghanistan have the lowest income inequality in the world. We're using products he developed right now. We wouldn't be able to do this without Bill Gates and without his company. Uh, look, here's the point, and I, I think the point you make is absolutely correct. 
In America, the vast majority of people who are really wealthy, and Bill Gates makes a lot of money, they made it by providing something that made us better off. So how are we worse off because they're better off? We're better off because they're better off. And Bill Gates, it's important to remember, Adi, only owns 7% of Microsoft. Who owns the other 93%? Mostly our pension funds. The insurance policies we own are backed up by investments in Microsoft and other companies. So the point is, this all of this this constant rhetoric about these super rich people. And part of it is based on the myth that if we made them give us all their income, we could fund all this government. Well, we point out in this book that tax rate, the average tax rate rises up to 41% of income, state, federal, and local, as income rises up to 0.01% of all earners. For a few people, uh, the so-called super rich, they give away so much money and earn so much money in capital gains that their rate falls slightly. But the point, one of the points the book makes is, if you took every penny of income of every billionaire in America, you could hardly fund government for a week. Remember, you're already taking a lot of it, but if you took the rest, you could fund government for a little more than a week. Uh, so this idea that somehow we could have more if we took what Bill Gates had is just invalid. And we got no right to take what he has. We've already taken a lot of it, and every step of the way, he paid taxes on it. And I think this this also sort of serves to to undercut the narrative that the rich don't don't pay their fair share. Yeah, well, look, if you look at the figures, that's verifiably false. And it's important to note, you remember when ProPublica came out with their expose about they had they had gotten these stolen tax data. And these rich guys like uh, uh, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett paid these low rates. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, they were able to show that because they did a bait and switch. Apparently, they took the stolen data on how much taxes was paid, but they didn't report how much income was earned. They instead made up a figure as to what they would have earned had they sold all their assets every year and paid taxes on that. Well, nobody pays taxes on unrealized gains. You didn't have to pay taxes on the appreciation of your house uh, this year. You didn't have to pay taxes on the appreciation of your uh, retirement program uh, over the last few years that has exploded. Nobody pays taxes on that basis. But that's how they got their number. Uh, and we also showed that the, the Piketty material, uh, the French economist who's uh, become famous by pointing out how terrible the American economic system is, that in fact his numbers are based on not counting government transfer payments at all at the low income level, 
and then making up an income level like ProPublica, where you assume that their income is whatever you would say it would be if they sold all their assets. Uh, but that's not the world we live in. Yeah, and the the argument that we always hear um, is that someone will look at, you know, just to take the same example, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, any of these billionaires, look at them and say, they have $300 billion in net worth. No one should have that much money. If we took that much money away from them, we would be able to pay for X amount of social programs. And I think, yeah, on paper, they have $300 billion, but you, you realize you can't actually take $300 billion from them, right? <laughs> Well, and also, you can only do it once. The, uh, <laughs> and we call it theft. You know, there's this little provision in the Constitution that says no property shall be taken except through compensation. Um, so, again, it's I don't understand this envy of people who have contributed. Warren Buffett is the greatest investor in history. It's true, he's become very rich investing money, but it was our money, and it made us richer. So why am I supposed to resent the fact that he made me richer, but he made himself a lot richer? So it's just a, it's a way of thinking that I don't get, but obviously there are people who do, or they use it. Probably, and, and I hate to sound cynical, but I wonder if some people just don't use this as it's been used since the time of Plato to argue that uh, people have this because they took it away from me. Well, obviously, in the world we live in, it's not a zero-sum world. You can think whatever you think of Elon Musk. I don't know him. But the point is, he made every penny he has. He didn't take anything from me. Uh, when somebody graduates from MIT and goes to work for two or $300,000 a year, they didn't take that money away from me. They created value, and they're doing things that are valuable to me and to the country. So why should I resent it? I, I don't get it. But, you know, Jefferson used to say good men with the same facts. Um I have differences of opinion. I'll yeah, and so conclusion. so so then I think the question really becomes what do we do about poverty? And so I mean the the argument that a lot of people make is that let's just keep expanding transfer payments um you know so that people who are struggling um who perhaps you know don't live, live below the poverty line, you know, or housing or food insecure, you know, we can we can sort of take care of that just with transfer payments. So without without yeah, we've already taken care of it's the point. How much do you want to do? And should we not go back to the Clinton welfare reform where we reform welfare for a tiny sliver of welfare, aid to families with dependent children, with a work requirement? Shouldn't we have a work requirement for means-tested programs for able-bodied men and women? And I think the answer is yes. And I can't believe that it is either good for the economy or good for the people receiving the welfare benefits to receive welfare benefits 
and not work. Would that then um, include um, people with, um, say, mental illnesses or drug addictions? No, no, I'm talking about people. Well, with with drug addiction, if somebody dr- has drug addiction and they're getting means-tested welfare programs, I think they ought to have to go into a treatment system or a treatment program. Surely we don't want to subsidize drug addiction. But no, I'm talking about able-bodied men, able-bodied and able-minded men and women who are capable of working. Um, We ought to help the people who need help. But look, since one of the things that always frustrated me in my 25 years in American government was trying to find a way to help people that need help without destroying the incentive of other people to help themselves. Uh, what would America be like if uh, larger numbers of people decided to just quit working? Uh, how much talent would we lose of people that go on and have very productive lives? Um, I think though that's the debate we ought to be having, in my opinion. Um, oh yeah, um, that's that. I think once you once you sort of lay out all the math, then that argument sort of starts to seem irrefutable, right? Uh, especially especially given the, the the striking statistics, why wouldn't you want um, able bodied, um, you know, able minded people? Especially given the the current climate, I mean, there's there's so many more job vacancies than there are are jobs, and if you you're someone who has the ability to work, then I, I think I, I don't know anyone mainstream politically who who would think, you know, it's a good idea to just pay you to to, to lounge around at home. Well, I, listen, I agree with you. I would hate to have to defend the position that it's a good idea to pay people not to work when they're able-bodied and could and should work. But I'm not sure that they're not people who wouldn't vote against that proposal in Congress. I'd like to have the proposal and have the vote and see how they vote and hopefully the American people would demand reform. Final point I want to be sure I get in is that we take a very close look at mobility. And we show that 93% of people who are born and grow up in the bottom 20% of earners as adults live in families that have higher incomes than their children. Uh, Opportunity is alive and well in America for those who work. But if you don't work, you don't benefit from the tremendous growth that's occurring. And again, it goes back to the point about paying people not to work. When you do that, you take them off the escalator that is the American economy. And they don't benefit from it. They only benefit when government gives them more. Yeah, and I, I think that, that there's that famous Brookings Institute study where in America you only need to do three things to make it into the middle class, almost you know, with almost guaranteed. Um, the the first one is finish high school. The second one is um, not not get married and have kids until you're at least 21. And um, the the third thing is to get a job, like you say, um, get a full time job. And if you do those three things. There's almost no, no nobody in America that did those three things um, ends up in permanent poverty. And that's something that has no no um, effect on no matter where you're born. You know, you could be born in the bottom quintile or the top quintile, high, 
public high school is available to every single person. You don't have to, to, to get married or pregnant before you're 21. And anyone who does those things can get a full-time job, assuming they're able-bodied and able-minded. Um, there are millions more, and there have always been millions more job vacancies in the country than there are um, than, than there are, sorry, um, workers. People so, looking for jobs. Yeah. 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 Listen, if you're hustling, uh, if you want to work, there are plenty of jobs out there. And you can't fail in America by making one mistake. Uh, you've got to make mistake after mistake. And look, if you want evidence about how America works, just look at your own family, look at the people around you, at where they came from. Now, I don't view myself as any special case, but neither of my parents graduated from high school. My brother was the first person in my extended family to ever graduate from high school, the first to ever go to college. So if you're going to try to convince me that America doesn't work, that it's unfair, you're going to get up money early in the morning because I don't have faith. I have evidence. America works. You work. America works for you. I think the the best case that the, 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 the best case we can make for that is is all the people that came to America from Korea and Vietnam um, in, in the 1970s. After you know their homelands were destroyed by war, they didn't speak English. They didn't have you know a, a dollar. They had nothing except the clothes on their back. And today, their children make so much more than the average American. No, that's right. Well, look, you the 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 success of Asian Americans is a testament to hard work. There's no doubt about that. They got what a lot of what my mama called wanna. They wanna succeed, and they're willing to work to succeed. And look, if you want to do something and you're willing to work to do it, <laughs> it's very difficult to fail in America. Oh, yeah, that's that's for sure. Um, so finally, just to finish off today, um, I wanted to ask you something that's a little bit off topic. Um, but as someone who's seen senatorial procedure up close, I, I just wanted to quickly get your take on a, the filibuster debate that's been a hot topic in the public discourse. So given your experience in the Senate, do you think the American people would stand to benefit in a filibuster free Senate? Uh, I think the filibuster in the Senate serves the public well. It basically requires that you have a broad base of support to change government policy. Um, policy changes that work are virtually always bipartisan. And um, if you can't get 60 votes in the Senate, uh, it's an indication that you don't have broad-based support for your policies. And you remember, every two years we have an election. So if you think you're right, you go to the American people and you say, my policy failed because I didn't have enough votes. Vote for people who support my policy. Uh, so, look, I think if you – I learned in my Senate career especially that if you want your reforms to last, they got to be bipartisan. Um, if you can't convince the other party, then probably your program will last only until they're in power, and then they'll repeal it. And stability requires bipartisan government. 
Absolutely. Okay. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the show, Senator Graham. Those are all the questions I have for you today. It's been a real pleasure. Well, listen, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.